You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 84, by Rudolf Steiner, his last public lectures, entitled The Aims of Anthroposophy and the Purpose of the Gertianum, Eleven Lectures, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 10, entitled Anthroposophy and the Ethical and Religious Life, given in Vienna on the 29th of September, 1923. In a le- lecture last Wednesday, I spoke of how supersensible knowledge can emerge through further development of our ordinary human faculties of soul, by methods that science too can acknowledge. I tried to show that systematic development of these soul faculties does indeed lead to a power of vision by which we can perceive a supersensible world in the same way that we perceive the sense world around us by means of physical senses. Through this higher power of perception, we do more than acknowledge in the abstract that a spiritual world exists as well as a sense world. No, we delve into an actual experience, a real experience of spirit beings that form an environment within which we live when we raise ourselves to the level of spirit, an environment just like the plants and animals that surround us in the physical world. This kind of supersensible knowledge is entirely different in character from what we normally regard as knowledge, both in ordinary life and in the pursuit of science. In the latter case, we appropriate ideas, such as those constituted by natural laws. Yet possessing such ideas does not enable us really to inform the soul with them so that they become an immediate power comparable as spiritual capacity to the strength of human muscles that is activated whenever we do something physically. Thoughts remain for us something shadowy, and we know from our own first-hand experience that by and large they do not exert much effect upon the human heart compared to our deepest heartfelt concerns. As I think I showed in my last lecture, the capacity of perception I have been describing that actually enables us to penetrate the world of spirit, allows us to become aware of our own supersensible being, as it was before we descended to earthly existence. And in consequence, what we acquire as knowledge of our own self in the world of spirit does not leave the heart, the deepest needs of our soul, untouched in the way that abstract insights do. Certainly, if we had pursued a life of inquiry and research, we will not underestimate the inner drama that can lie for us in a quest for knowledge and understanding. But the knowledge gained in scholarship and science is nevertheless confined to pictures of the outward world. Indeed, if we have undergone a scientific training, we will be proud, above all, of the fact that these pictures objectively reflect the outer world and no more that they do not excite our inner life, do not pulse within it in the way that blood pulses through our veins. 
but the supersensible knowledge I have been describing is something that affects us in a way quite different from the knowledge we are accustomed to. And in order to clarify what I mean, I'd like to use a kind of metaphor, though it is more than that in fact, and does fully encapsulate the reality I am speaking of. Let's consider the two states of consciousness within which we usually dwell. We could also say three states, but for our purposes now, we will consider sleep and dream as one. During sleep we are cut off entirely from the outer world. In dream we inhabit only an inner world that can assume grotesque and chaotic forms. We may be in a room with many others, but our dream world will be ours alone and we do not share it with them. If we study this dream world, we can see how what we regard as our inner being is connected with it. Our bodily nature is already remarkably reflected in dream, in fantastical images. A certain pathological or overactive state in one of our organs can appear in a particular dream image, or else such images will conjure symbolically sometimes in very dramatic form, some outer noise or such like in our vicinity. Thus dream creates pictures of what is happening within us and outside us. And this is all connected in turn with our whole life on earth. Dream draws into its dramatic pictures experiences originating even in our life's most distant past. And The more we study its workings, the more we can recognize that our inmost human nature is, albeit in an instinctive and unconscious way, connected with dreams unfolding activity. If we observe these things carefully, we can discover that at the moment of awakening, say, we can gain a deeper perspective on ordinary life than is usually the case. What we experience in dream and sleep in encapsulated seclusion, in a way we do not normally share with other people, is a soul-spiritual quality that descends into the body, as it were, into the will, and thus also into the will-pervaded thought forces and sensory forces, and in waking life comes into relationship with the outer world via the body. Waking up means a transition into a quite different mode of consciousness than we have in dream. We engage with outer occurrences by virtue of the fact that our soul participates in the occurrences of our own organism, which in turn are connected to outward occurrences. Naturally, proof that my account of these processes is objective cannot be furnished by abstract computational means, nor empirically. But proof is apparent to those who can observe phenomena in this domain, and, in particular, observe how something like a, quote, waking dream, close quote, underlies ordinary, everyday, prosaic soul life, a subconscious imagining, a life in pictures. It is true to say that just as we can dive below the surface of water to the ocean floor or a riverbed, so we can also delve down from our rational mind to deeper regions of the soul. Here we penetrate to something which, while having a less precise correlation with the outer world, 
more intimately concerns us than rational thought. Here also we encounter everything that can prompt this rational life to discover its independent, inventive power that instigates it to pass on into artistic creativity and even, as I will be explaining, moves this rational mind when the human heart turns from ordinary observation of and reflection on the world to a religious worship, to reverence for the spirituality in the world. When we wake up ordinarily, through our soul's engagement with our bodily organs, we enter into a connection with the outer world that enables our waking mind to judge the nature of our dreams, their rightness or wrongness, their truth or untruth. Dream life itself cannot do this. It would be sorely misguided to think one could find a, quote, higher reality, close quote, in the chaotic, albeit also dramatic images of dream, then waking experience can discern as its meaning. We remain at the same level of waking experience when we engage with mundane knowledge through our rational preoccupations, through ordinary science. But through the contemplation, meditation, and, as I will put it, the strengthening of the soul that I spoke about last time, we practice something at a higher level, consciously, that we unconsciously practice through our bodily organization when we wake up. Rising to this form of supersensible knowledge is a higher awakening. And just as we can see a particular dream in the light of waking experience, drawing on memory and other soul faculties to relate this dream, say, to a bodily disturbance or an outward occurrence while we were asleep and thus embed it in the context of reality. So, through the supersensible perception I have described, we can contextualize our sensory experiences as we ascertain them through observation and experiment by reference to a higher world a world of spirit. By means of the exercises I have described, we relate them to this higher world, just as on awakening in the ordinary way we engage through our organism in the corporeal world. This marks the dawning of a new world of experience, really an awakening to a new world, an awakening at a higher level. This is really the nature of supersensible experience. And such an awakening requires that one who awakens henceforth to evaluate the whole sensory, physical world from the standpoint of this new mode of experience, just as we evaluate dream from the perspective of waking life. What I do here in my life on earth, what I gain through my physical understanding, I now learn to relate to processes I pass through as a soul-spirit being in a purely spiritual world before I descended to the earthly world, just as I relate what I dream to my waking experience. I learn to relate everything in physical nature to a world of spirit, though not in a generalized way, not to some fantastical spirit world, but to the detailed, 
tangible, densely populated reality of a world of spirit. Through the powers of inquiry that I described, those of imagination, inspiration, and intuition, this world of spirit becomes discernible around us. And just as, in ordinary life, we feel we live in a quite different realm when awake than in sleep, so our whole state of soul changes when we awaken to this higher reality. Thus, an account, as I have given here, of supersensible perception is not merely concerned with conveying pictures of the supersensible world, but represents our passage from one state of consciousness to another, from one state of soul to another. But this also means that the soul contents with which we are concerned in ordinary life become very different too. Just as we become a different person when we wake up from who we were during sleep, so through this supersensible perception we likewise become different in a sense. The thoughts and ideas we possessed in our ordinary mind now change. This is not just a change of concepts and ideas, an increase in understanding, but a radical shift in life, and it affects our deepest human concepts. We become different in the very depths of our thinking, at the very root of our soul existence. By virtue of the fact that, albeit only for brief moments, we can enter into the realm that is perceived supersensibly. Let me cite two thoughts which play the greatest conceivable role in ordinary life, where they possess their full and deep validity. But at the moment we ascend into the supersensible world, they acquire a quite different form. These are the two terms that underpin our view of the world, true and false, right and wrong. Truly supersensible perception has no interest whatsoever in shaking or unsettling the sound foundations of ordinary life. No, but this supersensible perception does add something to ordinary life, complements it without taking anything from it. Those who become untrue to ordinary life through an impractical mysticism are incapable of developing authentic supersensible knowledge. Authentic supersensible perception and knowledge is not born of fantasists or dreamers, but rather of those who can engage their full humanity in practical realities of earthly existence. Thus, I will not unsettle the foundations of ordinary life by tearing up the roots of what we think of as true and false, right and wrong. On the contrary, truthfulness and authenticity are strengthened and consolidated in our feeling sensibility, through the metamorphosis these terms undergo in the light of higher perception. On really entering this higher supersensible world, one no longer speaks in such abstract ways as to say, this is true, that is false, this is right, that is wrong. Instead, the idea of what is true and right transforms into one we also know in ordinary life, albeit in a more instinctive way there. This concept of ordinary life transforms into a spiritual apprehension. True and right changes into the idea of sound or healthy, while false and wrong 
translates into the idea of unhealthy. In ordinary life, when we reflect on something or feel something or intend something, we say, this is right, that is wrong. But when we live in the realm of supersensible perception, instead of these terms right and wrong, we gain the sense that the one is healthy, the other sick. You will say that healthy and sick are vague terms, but this is only so in ordinary life and the ordinary mind. This vagueness ends when higher knowledge is sought in the exact way I described in my first lecture. Thus exactitude also enters into what we experience within this realm of higher knowledge. There, healthy and sick are terms we use for what we experience in communion with the beings of the supersensible world, whom we behold through such perception. Just consider how intimate to us this can make whatever becomes the focus of supersensible perception. It affects us as closely as the body's health and sickness. Of one thing I experience in the supersensible realm, I will say, I live my way into it. It raises, enhances my life, exalts it. In a certain way, I become more real in consequence. It is healthy. Of another thing, I will say that it deadens, even destroys my own life, and I perceive, therefore, that it is sick or unsound. And in the same way that using the terms right and wrong we find our place in the ordinary world, integrating ourselves into ethical life and the life of society, so we integrate ourselves into the supersensible world through healthy and sick. But this means we are rooted in this supersensible world, with our whole being, in a far more real way than we are embedded in the sense world. In the sense world we separate ourselves from things by these terms, right or wrong. I put it like this, right invokes a less intense sense of well-being, and wrong, especially to some, invokes a less intense sense of pain. But in the supersensible world it is not possible at all for experiences to be kept at arm's length in this way. There our whole being, our whole reality is involved in the way we experience this supersensible world. And because of this all dispute ceases there. Are things realities? Are they mere phenomena? Do they simply show us how our own sense organs respond to a stimulus? And so on. Matters I do not wish to embark on here since there would be insufficient time. This kind of discussion of things within physical reality really has no meaning in the spiritual supersensible world, for its reality or unreality is tested by observing that one thing has a healthy effect upon me and another an injurious effect, if we take that word in its full weight and seriousness. The moment we ascend to the supersensible world, we notice that what was otherwise knowledge, devoid of potency, becomes an inward power of the human soul itself. We pervade the soul with this supersensible knowledge in the same way that our body is suffused with blood. In such knowledge, therefore, we also come to know the whole relationship to the human body of soul and spirit.
learning thereby to perceive how the human being's spirit soul descends from a supersensible pre-birth existence and connects with the inherited body. To comprehend this, we must first so fully acquaint ourselves with the spirit soul that we can experience its reality firsthand, inwardly, in the same way as health and sickness. Thus, supersensible knowledge is not really mere understanding, but however reluctant we may be to use this phrase, since it easily sounds sentimental, an ensoulment of ourselves. It is soul itself, soul content, that enters us when we penetrate to this supersensible knowledge. We do not, after all, become aware of our eternal existence, our immortality, through philosophical analysis and discourse. We become aware of it rather in direct experience, just as we perceive outward things in direct sense experience. But an objection may be raised to what I have said here. Yes, someone who has faculties of supersensible perception can speak in such a way. But what about those who do not yet possess these faculties? Well, the finest form of human community is when people nurture each other's soul development. This establishes human community on a wonderful foundation. And so we can say this, not all people will become botanists or astronomers, but nevertheless the major findings, at least, of astronomy or botany will be of importance for everyone and will become common knowledge through people's sound and rational acceptance of them. Similarly, the healthy human soul can directly absorb and understand what is presented by a spiritual investigator capable of inquiring into the supersensible world. After all, we are born for truth, not untruth. And what a spiritual investigator communicates will always be clothed in words and formulations that depart from what we are accustomed to receiving as images of the physical sense world. When the spiritual investigator presents perceptions and findings, this can act upon other people's whole being, upon their ordinary, sound, common sense, awakening it in a way that can really lead it toward that higher awakening of which I spoke yesterday. And so I keep saying that while I have tried in books such as Title Occult Science and Outline and Title Knowledge of the Higher Worlds to show how through systematic practice we can achieve what I have called vision of the world of spirit so that everyone can to a certain degree become a spiritual investigator, nevertheless this is not essential. You see, our sound human faculties can receive what the spiritual investigator communicates. It can resonate in the human soul if this soul is open and receptive enough and such knowledge will figure to those receptive to it as something long known. That is the distinctive thing about this spiritual inquiry, about supersensible knowledge as I have described it, that it does not convey anything that is not already subconsciously present in every person. And so each and every person can feel this. Yes, I knew that. It lives in me. 
and if I had not allowed myself to be dulled or numbed by preconceptions originating in orthodoxies and science, one or another experience I have had in the past would have enabled me to comprehend aspects of the larger context that spiritual science can present. By virtue of the fact, for instance, that ideas of true and false transform into those of healthy and sick, inner soul experience grows ever keener. At a higher level we engage more keenly and intensively with reality than we do simply by waking up in the morning and engaging with physical reality. By this means, feelings and soul experiences are aroused that are just as exact in perception as they can be in relation to outward things. But what supersensible perception can give us concerns our whole being, by contrast to sensory knowledge, which really only addresses the head. Allow me to illustrate this holistic nature of supersensible perception with a personal instance, although the personal in this realm also has an objective validity, since what is objectively perceived in this way has an intense connection to one's person. To illustrate how supersensible perception can be more than mere head knowledge, but encompass our being in an infinitely more vivid and lively way, I'd like to say this. Those accustomed, as every authentic spiritual investigator must also be, to ordinary knowledge and perception, will know how the head participates in this ordinary cognition. Specifically, if we have spent our life in ordinary activities of research and inquiry, when we then ascend to supersensible perception, we are compelled to exert all our powers to hold fast to the supersensible knowledge that approaches us. We can observe that the exertion needed to pin down an idea about the natural world, a law of nature, the outcome of an experiment or a clinical observation, is as nothing compared to the inner effort needed to hold fast to the perception of a supersensible being. And I always found it necessary to use more than my head, as it were, to fix the supersensible perceptions. To support the effort, the head can make through other organs, for instance the hand. If you record in drawing something that appears to you supersensibly, just in a few strokes, or write it down in characteristic aphoristic phrases or even single words, then the effort applied in such activity is more than one that merely draws on the nervous system, as is typical for ordinary inquiry. Instead, such exertion draws deep upon your organism to support these perceptions. And this means that your supersensible perceptions will not be merely fleeting, that they do not fade like dreams, but that they can be retained. This is how I always have to work, and during my life have acquired wagon loads of notebooks in the process, which I never look at again. Activity is necessary for this retention, allowing you to keep in mind the things that are revealed. It is not that you consult your notes or drawings again afterward to read off what you discovered. This writing or drawing is, of course, nothing like mediumistic, automatic writing. It is as conscious as that involved in any scientific inquiry or similar. 
and it serves only to hold fast with your whole being the supersensible perceptions that come toward you. In turn, therefore, this also affects your whole being, encompasses your whole being, does not remain as impressions received by the head alone. The impressions are ones that affect your whole heart and soul. And what we otherwise experience in earthly life, joys with all their inner vivacity, pain of a greater or smaller kind, all the experiences we have through the outward sense world, through our interactions with other people, the ups and downs of life, this again appears at a higher soul-spiritual level when we ascend to regions of the supersensible where we cannot speak any longer of true and false, but rather of health and sickness. And when you have gone through everything I described last time, especially also the great feeling of pain at a certain stage on the path toward the supersensible, then you penetrate to a level at which, as you approach supersensible experiences, you pass through an inner drama in which these perceptions can cause joy and pleasure otherwise only possible in physical life, or where they elicit the deepest pain, where you have renewed your soul life at a higher level, with all the inner coloration and intimate inwardness of soul life and sensibility that we possess through having grown to be one with our bodily organization in daily life. And it is here that higher knowledge, supersensible knowledge, meets what plays into ordinary life as moral existence. This human morality, with everything connected to it, with religious feeling, with an awareness of freedom. The moment we rise to direct experience of the life of spirit, with its healing or injurious qualities, in a sense we come to the root of human morality, the root of our whole moral existence. We only meet this root of morality by coming to perceive how physical sense life, along with what flows out of us, is really a kind of dream in relation to a higher life, just as dream is dream in relation to ordinary life. And the conscience we feel rising up in us from incohate depths of our human nature, and which governs our actions in ordinary life, which governs our beneficial or harmful effect on those around us, this conscience, which I would say shines up out of obscure profundities of our being and prompts us to act in moral or immoral ways, now grows clear and bright and is contextualized within a reality just as dream is contextualized within reality when we awaken. We come to discern conscience as something that exists in shadowy form within us, as a bright reflection of the meaning and import of the world of spirit, the supersensible world to which we belong as human beings in the very core of our nature. And now, when we contemplate the moral world order and try to discover the reality underlying it, we understand that we must pass on from what sensory knowledge gives us to supersensible knowledge. This is what I attempted to describe 30 years ago in terms of a solely ethical problem, as a moral conundrum in my book titled The Philosophy of Freedom. Without considering supersensible knowledge in that book, 
but purely by tracing and exploring human moral impulses, I was trying to determine how morality invariably springs not from the thinking that focuses on outward things, outward occurrences, or bodily processes, but from an inward life of thinking that encompasses soul and will, a thinking soul life that is self-founded and originates in the realm of spirit. At the time, in titled The Philosophy of Freedom, I was compelled to search for a life of soul that is also independent of human corporeality, which appears by comparison with the robust reality of the outer world of the senses, to possess only shadowy reality, but which is intrinsically rooted in the spiritual foundations of the world. The way in which ethical impulses proceed from a thinking that is cleansed of outer sense qualities, yet is very much alive within us, is what gives us our ethical character. And if through supersensible perception we now learn to perceive the conscience rooted in us as basically a reflection within us of the real world of spirit, which plays actively through the sense realm, then we come to discern human morality as something that without our knowledge, even if we only hear it as a faint inner voice in us, binds us forever to the world of spirit that can become manifest to us through supersensible perception. This is not to say that this supersensible perception is therefore of no significance for ethical life, since we do, of course, have this voice of conscience in us and can act on it practically in life in each situation we find ourselves in. You need only consider that old spiritual traditions, supersensible insights from ancient times that have survived, have today faded and live on only as faint echoes. And you will see how greatly we need new stimulus for our humanity. Here many people succumb to a grave error. It is clear as a result of scientific thinking, which nowadays many still regard as the only valid form of knowledge, that science with its ignorabimus, its doctrine of the proper limits to knowledge, that many have relinquished the pursuit of knowledge. They believe that moral impulses, religious intentions, cannot be gained by means of this pursuit. Instead, it is thought that ethical and religious impulses, the way we lead our lives, must be derived not from insights and understanding, but from predispositions of human nature intrinsic in us. It has now come to the point where people dispute that knowledge can offer any stimulus or motivation that will enrich or our moral and religious life through assimilation of our own spiritual nature, for that is indeed what we assimilate in supersensible perception. It has come to the point where people doubt the value of this. But on the other hand, it will become apparent, as long as you are not one of those, in quotes, pragmatists, who in fact only pursue routine orthodoxies, but instead a truly practical person, that if we engage with the whole world consisting of body, soul, and spirit, we will require more than pale traditions to sustain us in each and every situation in life. In actual life, these traditions can no longer provide a full ethical or religious foundation 
from which to draw inspiration. Let me give you a specific instance of what I mean. There is a great deal that is unsatisfactory in education today, and this begs the question of how children should be educated. With Emil Moltz's pioneering project in Stuttgart, the founding of the Walder School, we asked this question of the world of spirit in order to meet the challenge of education. I will just briefly set out the intentions that necessarily underpinned this. Above all, we had to ask how we can educate children to be self-possessed people, people who encompass their whole being and can also manifest their whole nature in an ethical and religious stance toward life, real understanding of the human being, of body, soul, and spirit was necessary for this. But this insight into human nature cannot be derived from generally prevailing orthodoxies today, let alone lead directly to practical measures in education that can allow us to tackle the most diverse tasks that face us. I'd like to briefly illustrate why the external science of which we are so proud today, which concerns itself with the material realm in empirical research and analysis, is unable, in fact, to penetrate the secrets of matter. I will keep this brief, but you can read about it in much more depth in my books, especially entitled Riddles of the Soul, with all the necessary proofs furnished there. If we attend to the findings of modern science, we gain from it, for instance, the idea that the human heart is a kind of pump that drives blood through our organs. But the science of the spirit, as I have been describing it, leads us to a view of the human being composed of more than the physical body alone. It identifies a being of spirit soul within us and shows how this spirit soul penetrates our bodily nature. Thus blood is not driven through the body by the action of this heart pump, but directly by the spirit soul itself. It engages in blood circulation as the energy that makes our blood pulse through our organism. In this view, the heart is something like a sense organ. With my eyes, I consciously perceive the world around me and bring it to consciousness in my thoughts, thus make it my own, and in the same way I unconsciously perceive, through this inner sense organ of the heart, the blood's pulsation, which I elaborate unconsciously by my soul's spiritual forces. The heart is not a pump. It is the inner sense organ by means of which we perceive what our spirit soul inwardly elaborates in our blood, in the same way that we perceive the outer world through our outward senses. The moment we pass from rational anatomizing of the human organism to a view of the whole human being, the true nature of the heart becomes apparent, its true significance. It is an inward sense organ. In the heart become apparent the effects of human blood circulation with its living impulses. The heart does not instigate this pulsation. And this is an example of, I would say, the tragedy of materialistic science that it cannot actually penetrate the secrets of material life. We can only do so if we observe the spirit in its true work, in its creative engagement with matter. If on the one hand, therefore, 
we perceive the creative spirit at work within matter, then on the other, through supersensible perception. We can also become aware not just of the mind or spirit with its abstract thoughts, but of the true spirit in its living being. And only then can we have a real knowledge of the human being, such as we need if we are to develop in growing children something that can live in them for the rest of their lives with strength and in full accord with life and reality. Through this keen enlivening of our understanding of human nature, the way the teacher can see the child will be quite different from the view afforded by only outward observation. From the very first moment of life, the developing child is basically the most wonderful earthly phenomenon. It is wonderful to behold something emerging in the child from an initially enigmatic and undefined interiority that makes the face ever more characteristic and defined, that turns the initially unfocused countenance into a physiognomy full of utterance, to see how the movements of the child's limbs, to begin with still ungoverned, become ever more governed and directed. We bear a great responsibility, too, for supporting and cultivating these developments. We can stand before the developing human being, and with all the inner devotion that supersensible perception can elicit, can say this, within the child manifests something that lived in pre-earthly, spirit-soul existence in supersensible beauty. It has departed from its supersensible beauty, in a sense, and has submerged itself in the body that physical heredity was able to supply. And you as a teacher must draw forth what rests as God-given endowment in the human body, so that from year to year, from month to month, from week to week, it can take hold of the physical body and pervade it, so that it can model the body to bear an affinity with and come to resemble the soul. You must also awaken in the human being, before you, what reveals itself there. And with this stance, you no longer engage in education and tackle the challenge of education equipped only with rational principles. But you bring your whole being to bear on the task, your whole human soul and sensibility, your whole human sense of responsibility. You gradually learn also that it is not enough only to observe the child when you must decide what this child needs at any moment, but you must also survey the whole of a human life. This is not an easy or comfortable thing to do, but the truth is that what may be apparent in an infant, say, emerges distinctively only in advanced age, having long remained hidden within a person. It reveals itself as either health-giving or injurious. As educators, we are concerned not only with the children as we see them now. The whole of a person's life lies in our hands. It is a superficial and mistaken educational principle to teach children only what they can already understand. This is to address the moment only, not to consider the whole of a person's life. You see, there is an age of childhood from second dentition to puberty when it is extremely beneficial for children to take things that they cannot yet fully understand on the authority of a beloved teacher. 
This can be the greatest blessing for life. It awakens children's life forces. If they can see in the self-evident authority of their teacher the embodiment of truth, beauty, and goodness. This does not hinder human freedom. This self-evident authority of the teacher grows and develops into a source of strength throughout the rest of a person's life. When at the age of 35, say, we recall with our mature sensibility something that we received into our heart around the age of seven or eight, that we took on trust on the authority of a beloved teacher, and that we only now understand as a mature person. When we draw forth this inner possession that first lived in us through love, then the dawning understanding of something that lies germinally within us will be the source of a rich inner enlivening. The child is robbed of such inner enlivening if the teacher seeks only to teach what can already be understood. This is a trivializing of the scope of education. We only pay due heed to the child's experience if we are able to engage with the whole person and above all teach in a way that can embed itself in the human soul. You may have met people who radiate blessing to others around them. They have a calming, soothing effect even when others are irritable and confrontational. And if we are really able to look back and as I said, this can be difficult to see how such people acquired these qualities, not only through their inherent disposition, but also through education and upbringing. We will often find that at a very delicate age, such people learned to look up with reverence and regard to carers or teachers who had a very warm and intimate, heartfelt relationship with them. This esteem and regard, this ability to revere, is like a mountain brook that goes deep underground and only springs up later again. What the soul acquires in childhood works down into the depths of the soul and only emerges again in advanced age when it becomes a power that seems to radiate blessing. To educate the child at a tender age so that these powers of reverence can transform into powers of blessing in old age is something we can encapsulate in a single metaphor. Our hands will never extend in blessing when we are old if we do not learn to fold our hands reverently in prayer at a tender age. This can show us in one specific instance how a particular challenge, that of education, can lead toward an ethical and religious mood. It shows also what our engagement with spirit perception can make of our sensibility, our will, and how it can imbue our whole outlook on life. What we might otherwise only develop in an outward way, as educational, in quotes, technique, can instead become central to our ethical and religious outlook. But imbuing with this kind of mood the education practiced at the Stuttgart Walder School and at other schools affiliated with it, certainly does not mean that purely practical aspects of pedagogy have been overlooked. Practical details are taken full account of. The task of education has here really become something which, with all its educational techniques, with all its practical attention to detail, at the same time meets the child with an ethical and religious mood. 
the actions of teachers, become ethical and religious actions too, since what is done is drawn from the deepest moral impulses. Because educational practice flows from the educator's conscience, and because the teacher sees a God-given soul being in the developing person, pedagogy becomes at the same time religious practice. This need not be sentimental at all, but can be precisely what our now very prosaic era particularly needs. By virtue of the fact that spiritual science becomes a lamp that sheds light on our actions in life and our whole outlook on life, life itself, as in the examples I have given about education, can become a kind of universal divine worship. Supersensible perception does not bring us abstractions, but real human powers. The insights gained through supersensible perception become actual life forces, and therefore they can also flow into our whole stance and outlook and can lead us beyond our ordinary limitations, from the sense world to the supersensible realm, and this in turn raises us to be moral beings. And then, in devoted love, we really can unite with the spirit of the world and thus develop truly religious piety. This becomes apparent in education particularly. If we observe children up to the age of six or seven, we find they are entirely physically wedded to their surroundings. Their being is an imitative one, right into language and speech. If we consider this physical immersion in everything around them, if we observe what remains a naturally given environment for the child, whose soul has not yet awoken, then it seems right to say that what we encounter in the child is a naturally appearing form of religious surrender to the world. The child learns so much, so quickly, through this naturally religious surrender to the world. And then we detach ourselves from the world, and from the age of six or seven, our educational environment gives our soul another intimating orientation. At puberty we come to independent judgment, growing into what gives us direction and aim out of ourselves. We do well indeed if now we are also released from our sensory organism. We can follow thought, follow the spirit, and grow into a realm of spirit just as we lived naturally in the world of ch as children. If as adults we can rediscover in the spirit the naturalness of a child's intimation of the world, if, after puberty, our mind and spirit can live in the world as the body of the child lived in the naturally given world, then our inmost human nature penetrates the spirit of the world in true religious devotion. We become religious people. If we are to grasp the very essence of supersensible perception and knowledge, then we need to transform ordinary forms of thought and perception into living powers. The same is true if we observe and understand the human being through what I described last time as the supersensible capacity of imagination. If we become aware that the human being is more than only a physical body, as physiology studies it, as it is anatomized for the purposes of developing the field of physiology, if we recognize by powers of perception I described that a supersensible being lives in this physical body, then we will also discover this supersensible being to be a sculptor who works upon the physical body, 
but then we must also be able to pass on from ordinary abstract ideas embodied in natural laws to an artistic apprehension of the human being. Then the laws by which we otherwise ordinarily grasp the human physical form must become configuring powers. Science must become art. The supersensible nature of the human being cannot be encompassed by abstract science. We gain a science of our supersensible nature only through a form of beholding perception that entirely transposes science into artistic experience. Science must not remain confined to logic and experimentation. Certainly we could assert this, but what does the real world care about our assertions? If we really wish to grasp the world, we must orient ourselves to the world rather than to our own theoretical requirements and even our own logical thoughts. You see, the world leads us from merely logical thoughts into an artistic domain. And therefore we only arrive at a true view of life if we can transform our conceptions of natural law through, quote, beholding judgment, close quote, as Goethe so beautifully put it, into living, configuring laws of nature. Then we rise through art, quote, through the dawn glow of beauty, close quote, as Schiller said, to knowledge, but also at the same time to the realm of true piety, the land of religion. And then, and I will conclude with this, we discover the real nature of all the doubts that come over people when they say that knowledge does not furnish us with any religious, ethical imperatives, that such impulses depend on other distinct powers that are far removed from those of knowledge and inquiry. Certainly I agree that no outward knowledge as such can ever lead us to an ethical and religious outlook on life. What does in truth lead us into an ethical and religious outlook does not lie in the sensory domain. It can only be studied in the supersensible realm. We can only truly and properly comprehend human freedom, therefore, if we penetrate into this supersensible realm. Similarly, a true knowledge and insight into the nature of human conscience only becomes available through supersensible inquiry. For by this means we reach the realm of spirit that does not subject us to natural laws, but allows us to act as free beings, at the same time imbuing and infusing us with the impulses that become manifest in conscience. And here becomes manifest to the divine nature of the world, which a naturally religious and pious person instinctively feels. It is true that to be a pious, religious person, we do not directly need the kind of knowledge and inquiry I have described. We can be this quite naturally and instinctively. Yet, as history teaches us, religious and ethical life cannot spring from a root other than that of knowledge, for all religious emancipation, and the religious disposition is, of course, always inherent in human beings, has proceeded from insights and knowledge that were first available through supersensible sources in ancient times. There is no moral or religious idea that did not spring from the root of knowledge. In our era, scientific thinking has also now sprung from the root of knowledge, yet it cannot reach the spirit. 
Because of this, many people cling to traditions to sustain their religious outlook. They think that these traditions embody something like a religious spirit, but in fact, these are atavistic remnants. Things simply pass down, and today they have grown so weak that we now need a new impetus through knowledge, not in the abstract, but an impetus that enlivens and invigorates knowledge, that will give people a new impulse in their practical lives, an ethical and religious impulse that springs with fresh immediacy again. That is what we need. And although it is said that this is certainly true in some respects, that knowledge as such is not needed for us to lead an ethical and religious life, on the other hand, as history once again shows, Knowledge must not hamper and mislead people in their religious and ethical sensibility. It must be possible for us to climb to the highest levels of knowledge, and yet in doing so, arrive at the very same place that was the God-given, God-governed home we inhabited before we had gained such knowledge. Something we intimated and felt, and were right to do so, must be rediscovered also as we strive for the brightest light of the highest knowledge. Then knowledge will not crush an ethical outlook on life, but can only kindle and properly imbue it, strengthening all morality, all religious conduct. Through such knowledge we become aware of life's deeper meaning, and we may indeed speak of such a thing. We become aware that through the mysterious workings of cosmic destiny, through the whole wise dispensation of the universe, we first stand here as spirit-willed beings, and that as such we can also further develop ourselves. But in doing so through outward knowledge, we find ourselves only upon an uncertain, incohate ocean where doubt assails and dissipates us by contrast to the unity we inhabited when we still retained our naiver intimations. But if we awaken from ordinary knowledge to supersensible knowledge, then we return to something in us that is God-given, God-imbued. What these gravely troubled times so greatly need is a new impetus in our ethical and religious way of life. This can only be truly cultivated if the knowledge which in human evolution until now has advanced from obscure intimations to a modern, wakeful clarity of thought is taken further toward a higher awakening, toward a deeper connection with the supersensible world. And at the same time, at this period of such grave trials for humanity in every corner of the earth, this will supply the impulse we need particularly for renewing social coexistence, indeed for the renewing of all modern thinking about society. We cultivate a religious and ethical outlook on life by advancing from ordinary knowledge through artistic and supersensible awakening. Understanding this, we nurture the very root of such an outlook, a truly unsentimental piety that enables us to serve the Spirit by the way we live. We nurture it by seeking to lead our powers of perception and inquiry toward the supersensible realm, so that its light allows us to awaken in a supersensible world where for the first time we feel ourselves to be souls free of natural laws, where we can at last stand in our full human dignity with true piety, authentic inwardness, and true religiosity as human spirit beings 
in the world of spirit. The end of lecture 10.